I'm not sure if the people that Lauren worked with were warned when she did uh, something along the lines of both experiment and performance art in which she went on dates with people being advised in real time by mechanical Turkers? Yeah. By mechanical oh. Turkers, how uh, kind of like that choose your own adventure um, <laughs> game, whether she should do A or B and then would get continuing advice. This uh, truly uh, shows uh, from her bio that she is indeed fascinated by the slightly uncomfortable moments when patterns are shifted, <laughs> expectations are broken, and participants become aware of the system. So uh, that was what uh, brought her work to my attention. Uh, as you may know, I've been long fascinated by mechanical Turk and uh, human computing, and the more I learned about what Lauren is doing, the more interested I got. And uh, that's why I'm so interested to hear what she has to say today. So just before you delve into uh, your opening presentation, Lauren, what, what drew you to this field? Or as best you can remember, were you always in the field at the intersection of art and technology? Um, I kind of started out studying computer science. And then I, some, I was always interested in art. And then at some point, they kind of started to come more and more together that and I guess computer science and art and then like my life just did this <laughs> now it's all a blur but yeah. sounds like a Venn diagram yeah yeah <laughs> excellent all right well take it away sure um so I'm going to show kind of a bunch of projects and some things that inspire me and um feel free to ask questions if I go quickly over something you don't know I can talk about it more if I'm talking about something you know you can act really bored and if enough of you do that I'll move faster um, anyway, so I'll talk like 30 minutes and then we'll talk. Great. And can people in the back hear okay? Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so maybe more to your question of how I started. Um, I, I went to tech school at MIT and it was kind of, it was great. I, you know, I fit right in, I was having a blast and then I finished and I realized, um, like out in the real world, I didn't really have any social skills. And I didn't really realize this till I got outside that kind of safe haven. Um, so I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know, like, I'm not so good at talking to people. I'm not bad at kind of hacking. Maybe I can kind of hack my way out of the situation. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right. So I started thinking about things that I, I wasn't very good at. And so um, one of these things was smiling. And so the first thing I did was I started to try and build this series of um, wearable devices that would help me out. <laughs> so basically this would detect if I was smiling and when I stopped smiling it would stab me in the back of the head until I said it. <laughs> I was really interested in this idea of like could I actually condition myself to smile you know using feedback like would I if I wore this enough would I just kind of mold my brain and so there was kind of a series of these there's a body contact training suit that would um, forced me to touch people. So if I went too long without touching anyone, it would start to fade in this white noise into the head of it, and I, in order to talk to someone, I had to touch them again. Or an anti-daydreaming device, so it would detect if I was talking to someone, and then it would start kind of like vibrating violently around my neck if, if I um, stopped paying attention to them. Um, and so a lot of this, you know, starts out with things that I think I'm not good at, but it's really inspired by some stuff I started reading around the same time. Um, one of these was the sociologist Irving Goffman, who kind of used like the performative, uh, uh, dramatic performance as a framework for thinking about social behavior. And so he had this kind of idea that 
you know, you think of everyone sort of like a role. And when you first meet them, you kind of broadly put them in a bucket. Like, oh, it's kind of like my cousin Jane, but a doctor like my brother. And then as you get to know them, you sort of, you know, sculpt it out into something a little bit more defined, you know, an actual person and not just a bucket. And this is useful because if you just really walk up to each person with like no assumptions, no expectations or ideas, it's really hard, right? It's really time consuming. Like I wouldn't know at all how to, what to say to you. Um, but then on the other hand, there's kind of this possibility that you might go in with so many expectations or assumptions that you kind of don't leave space for the person to surprise you or to be outside of that. Or maybe there's this kind of feedback cycle that starts to happen where you people are expecting you to be a certain way and so you start to fit that and so I guess I'm curious about like how do you break this feedback loop how can you open up more space um, and so another person that inspires me a lot is Harold Garfinkel and so he did some a lot of experiments back in around the 70s called breaching experiments and basically uh, there were these kind of simple things like he would ask his students go home and um, pretend you're a guest in your own home with your parents and um, it'll keep us on up. Actually, I'll, I'll wait for that. Um, and so it's this really small shift, right? But the the parents' reaction to it was was very extreme because it was it was kind of subtly messing something up where they couldn't say what was wrong, but they felt like something wasn't right. And so I really like this idea, and I I kind of think of this in relationship to glitch a lot. And so this is a, a video by Takeshi Murata, uh, data mashing. And so this is how I'm thinking about it. It's like this kind of small um, intervention or this small change you make in a system that kind of propagates and starts to reveal the whole structure of the system and at the same time has this kind of very surprising effect or it might show you something new. Um, so, and also thinking about all this, I guess the question, one question for me is like, what responsibility do you have to kind of maintain an understandable pattern of behavior? you know, if you change your identity or your behavior from day to day, are you kind of breaking some social pact or, you know, good faith agreement? Um, so I started thinking about, you know, the, the wearable series was just me thinking about what I didn't do well. But I, I started getting more curious about other people giving the feedback. Um, so this was a table called Relatable. And basically, every person on their table had a, a foot pedal that they could move to say how much they were enjoying the conversation. <laughs> and then the tabletop would glow or dim as kind of an aggregate result, a response. And then if it got too low, it would flash a distress signal for someone to come and save the conversation for you. <laughs> um, and so when I you know, had people try this, they were kind of freaked out. And they said, it doesn't feel right to be giving feedback on a conversation. Um, and it, at the same time, you know, we do this constantly, right? We're liking things, we're favoriting things, we're retweeting things, and that seems, you know, and we're, we're writing things that hopefully people will, will like or will star. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting, like just shifting into a physical space kind of takes on a new meaning. Um, uh, so then going on from this one, I started thinking about um, this was, you know, again, people giving the feedback, but what if it could just be like a machine? Hi, uh, how's it going? Uh, it's okay. Um, it's okay. You? Yeah, um, see, I've, I've been better. Um, you know, I know what we need here. 
Your eyes are so beautiful. Thanks. You look really great in green. Don't suffer through another awkward date. Let the Conversacube fast track your love life. New travel version can go everywhere you need to be. I like you. I like you too. Have you thought about it in a corporate environment in addition to a personal yeah, one? Yeah. Because it might give that junior person at the table license chance, to say, yeah. that's a dumb idea, the box made me say so. But Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, <laughs> I, I taught a class... Do you agree or are you just being prompted? <laughs> um, I, I taught a class where we uh, kind of looked at similar things and one of the projects that a student made was this app of Google Glass, where if you had a question, you could like type it in, and it would show up on his glass, and then he would ask the question. So he was kind of like the surrogate dumb person in the room. So if you had a question you were too scared to ask, you could just like use him as your your surrogate. So the like Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is the bot coming up with random words, or is it reacting to something in the conversation? Um, it, both. Um, it's reacting to kind of the audio levels and how much people are talking in relationship to each other and how many people there are. And then it's kind of selecting and then also how long you've been talking. And so there's kind of this little system behind the scenes where it's cer choose certain pairings of words based on where you were and what the kind of dumb idea of what the dynamic of it was. Uh, yeah, so I guess um, uh, a big inspiration for a lot of this work is kind of the critical design work, um, sort of pioneered by Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby at uh, the Royal College of Art in London. And so this piece here on the left is kind of one of the quintessential ones called Placebo Project, where they created this series of prototypes um, that were all designed to help people kind of think about how they relate to electromagnetic fields in their home. And, uh, and then they... What was interesting about it to me is that they actually took it into people's homes and gave them to people to use for a while and then interviewed them. And even though the, the objects didn't really do anything, the people would start to kind of form these relationships or these rituals around them or these patterns of behavior. And it just really kind of showed this potential for us to kind of imagine, a, um, imagine a whole world around a technology. It's, it goes beyond just what it, what it actually does. Um, a few others. So this is a project by Kelly Dobson called Screen Body, where she would, uh, it was a device for walking around, and if you felt like you had to scream, you could scream into it, and it would capture it. And then when you're out in somewhere more appropriate, you could, you know, release it into a, an open field or something. Um, or this is an old one by Krzysztof Luditsko, uh, Porta Parole. So uh, a device for people to tell a story that they might not necessarily feel comfortable or able to. Um, and I like the imagery here. It's you know, it's in one way serving as a voice or a mouthpiece, but on the other way, other hand kind of, you know, representing a gag. Um, or this series by Noam Torm called Accessories for Lonely Men. So it was all the things you might need if you were a lonely man, like a chest hair twirler, a heavy breather, a plate thrower, um, some hair on your head in bed, cold feet, or a sheet stealer. Um, this by Sputniko, the menstruation machine, so you could actually have the experience as a guy of what it feels like to have a period. 
Um, so all this work is really kind of inspiring to me in the some of the mechanisms it uses, but I think for me it's really important that um, the things I make actually work in some way. And I think this kind of confronts you with a, a few more questions. So this was a piece I did with um, Kyle McDonald. Hi Claire, how's hey, school treating you? Um, I'm doing okay right now. I'm just kind of annoyed because there's this girl named Stacy in my yoga class who just got pregnant and she won't stop talking about it. And I just feel like she's being really... Technology has made us more connected than ever. Shouldn't it help us get more from each other? She just won't stop talking about her pregnancy and what yoga moves that the whole class should not do because she can't. Us Plus gives suggestions based on speech analysis and facial expressions. Yeah, it's just everything. Everything is... Um, how are you doing, Mom? Well, actually, things haven't been all that great. I wasn't sure whether to tell you this, but, um... More honesty, more balance. I feel like we're barely communicating, and sometimes it's just... It's just not the same. I try to talk to you, and you don't respond, and I can't even... I love you. It's been so long since you said that. More connection. It's looking pretty bleak. And our profit margins fell last quarter. But I think we can turn things around. If we outsource step four, we should be okay. We could also get it down five cents more if we use cheaper materials in steps 19 and 23. And the public will never know. I like how you think. <laughs> more productivity. More success. Get more out of your conversations. Us Plus. So this is kind of similar to the Converse Q, but it, it was actually analyzing your speech a little more intelligently. And I think the important thing for us is that, you know, it's an actual app. You can, you know, download and add it to your Google Hangout pretty easily. Um, and so on, on one hand, it's a little bit terrifying, right, like that this computer is kind of prompting you. But then I think what you're suggesting about like a business context or any of these relationships, the, I think the other <coughs> question is, what if it actually works? Like maybe this idea terrifies you, but if you use this and you actually are connecting better, you know, what do you, how do you swear it off then? In fact, I thought the guy in the coat and tie was a physician about <laughs> to deliver really bad news, yeah. which is one of those social interactions that you need the professional for maybe, but he or she doesn't know really how to handle it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm really kind of interested in all of this sort of effective <laughs> research. So like Ross Picard's group at the Media Lab and um, the Persuasive Technology group at Stanford and a few others. Um, I'm thinking about a lot. I'm thinking about, you know, I, this Affectiva thing, which kind of grew out of some autism research, um, is a really interesting case to me because, you know, it, they were looking at how to kind of detect when an autistic uh, child, child was kind of getting more stressed out and about to have sort of an escalation. And then they could detect that and warn the, the teacher in the classroom or the parent. And I think most of us, most of us would say, okay, that's, you know, that's good. We're kind of avoiding this escalation. We're dealing with it. But on the other hand, the question is, you know, like how, what do we decide what normal is or what acceptable behavior is? Like who are we to say this student should, we want him to conform to the rest of the students? So what, where's the line between kind of helping someone become who they want to be versus kind of imp imposing that on someone. 
Um, and then something I've th been thinking about a lot is quantified self. So um, I think it gets a little bit kookier and a little bit more interesting every day. Um, you know, I started out just measuring your steps, which is really not very interesting um, until you start thinking about what the applications of these things might be. And so um, I, I like this app, Spreadsheets, that um, measures your activity in bed, duration, thrust, decibel peak, and then you can kind of chart that over time. Um, and then it also raises this question for me, I guess, which is that if you're counting your steps, that's a pretty much individual activity. But when you start to involve someone else, like where, who owns that, that data between you? And do you have the right to share it? So Jen Lo put her heartbeat on the internet. And so you can go to onehumanheartbeat.com and just see this kind of live feed of her heart beating. Um, and I think it's a pretty moving sight. Um, but I think it just starts to get at this issue for me. Like, so a heartbeat, probably the person whose heart it is still owns this data, but definitely I could go and have an effect on this person, right? And you would see that in the data. And so something I've been thinking about recently is this project I'm working on called PeopleKeeper, um, which is looking at kind of measuring the emotional data based on um, GSR, HRV, when you interact with people and kind of correlating that with who you're with and then starting to make some decisions about who you might want to spend time with in the future or giving you live notifications when you're about to meet someone. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit. So getting back to some of the um, performance stuff you're talking about. So this was sort of a precursor to the one you mentioned. Um, this was script. And for one month, I let anyone on the internet um, script my life. So they could log onto this website. And they, it was like a wiki. So they could kind of write anything that they wanted. Um, stage directions, lines, costumes. They could write themselves into the script. Um, and so it happened day by day. It's an inverse Truman Show. Yeah. It's yeah, the reverse yeah. of the Truman Show. Exactly. <laughs> and it happened day by day. So at the end of the day, I would you know, make that kind of the basis for my life. Um, and so the, I think the interesting part for me was that, you know, it started out feeling really constricting, like I was following the script all the time. Um, but there's also something kind of really freeing about it at the end. Like when I finally got to a point where I just kind of gave into it, um, I started to realize what a narrow box I put myself in sometimes. And I say like, oh, that sort of thing's not like something I would do. I could never do that. And then you, when you realize there's so much more room there, it can actually be kind of, kind of exciting. And so a lot of these performance artists are a big inspiration for me. So this is um, Tachinze, who did this one-year performance where he was attached by a <laughs> rope uh, to his collaborator. Hmm. And they couldn't touch, but they had to keep this rope. Um, and when you just start to think, think about doing that for a year, it's kind of mind-boggling. And it, it's such a kind of simple um, alteration or intervention. Um, and similarly, I. Uh, so a lot of people I work with are kind of in the realm of interaction design or technology design or interface. And so when I think about interaction design or interface design, this image comes to my mind. So this is Valley Export um, in Tap and Toschino or Tap and Touch Cinema. And so she would walk out in public wearing this kind of theater box and then invite people to stick their hands through and um, feel the show underneath, which was her bare chest. Um, but I think it's just a very moving image, you know, I, we sometimes get so wrapped up making technologies or thinking about how to engage someone, but it's, it really doesn't necessarily need more buttons or more, um, you know, special effects. Maybe it just needs boobs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I'm 
maybe it just needs... He's the boob in this picture, <laughs> yeah. correct? Many, many boobs. I'm not sure what the, the one in the background is doing exactly, but... Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's about people, right? It's about connection. And if you're looking at your phone, that, it, that is what you're doing. Um, or then some of these performances, I think these are pretty uh, well-known, but this is Marina Abramovich, Rhythm Zero, where she was on a table and people were invited to come up and use this series of objects on her in any way they wanted. Um, or Yoko Ono, where people were coming up and cutting off her clothes. And the thing that's interesting for me about both of these is that even if you're a spectator in the room and you choose not to participate, you're still implicated. You're still a witness to this, and your your choice to not do anything is still a, a choice. Um, and I think about that a lot in the context of my performances or the technologies we use. You know, even if you say I'm I'm ignoring it or I'm not engaging, that you know that's still a choice. Um, and then thinking a little more about surveillance. So this is <coughs> Sophie Kyle, uh, where she hired a private investigator to follow her around for a few days and take notes and. But the investigator didn't know she was the one that hired him. And then she's similar, at the same time, she's taking notes, kind of like wondering where he is, looking out for him, trying to find this person following her. Um, or Jill Madgett, in a sort of similar vein, um, used the CCTV system uh, around England and would wear around, walk around wearing this red um, jacket. And then she went and requested all that footage afterwards and made kind of a compilation. But in order to record... Uh, get the footage, she had to fill out these kind of forms requesting them, and she formed, filled them out as if they were kind of love letters to this system or to this um, entity. Um, and both of these are really interesting to me because it's, they're, you know, using an existing system and then kind of finding some way to subvert it or to appropriate it um, or to use it for their own performance. Um, so the script piece, I was talking about this kind of idea of feeling this freedom, and I wanted to see if I could kind of share that with So the idea with this app was that you could kind of post any interaction that you wanted to have and, you know, people could come up and meet you and have it. And so I was really trying to ask this question of, like, could we make an app that rather than telling us how to behave or, like, setting up a system, it actually opened up a space, you know, for us to, to choose or inspired us to come up with our own, our own behaviors. Um, and also this idea of, like, a, a relationship or a, a, an app for meeting people where it didn't involve, you know, a long-term dating situation or an email pen pal. It was just like, you know, I want to have your sandwich and I want to not talk to you anymore. Um, or maybe you do. Um, so I just saw the recent, like, Foursquare app, 
so that I guess they're kind of splitting into two different apps. But one of them is for finding the people around you. And then they have this section where you like put in there what you would like to do. And then you can see all the people around you and the things you want to do. So that made me kind of happy. <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, so thinking a lot about online, some artists that inspire me. Um, these are two pieces. On the left is uh, a piece by uh, Jonas Lund. Uh, called self-surfing. So basically, every time he goes to a web page on the internet, you can actually go and watch online. You can see the page. If you go to a website, you can see whatever page that he's currently browsing on. Um, or in a piece by Brian House on the right, Tangler. It's a browser extension where it connects you with someone else that's got the extension. And then it's kind of like when you're going to a page, you drag along this other person. Um, or if they go to a page, they, they drag you along. So you have to sort of negotiate this relationship. Um, but in both cases, it's kind of this idea of like opening up your yourself to the internet in some way, or opening up some some aspect of the privacy. Um, this is a piece by Kyle McDonald called "People Staring at Computers," where he went into an Apple store and installed the software on um, all the machines in there, and it would just take photos of them as they were staring at them, and then he <coughs> kind of made this show at the end that played back all these photos. Um, and I guess it kind of culminated with the Secret Service showing up at his door and a lawsuit and et cetera, um, as I guess you guys can probably imagine. Uh, <laughs> um, a piece by uh, Julian Oliver called Newsweek, where you could insert this device in a cafe and then it would route the traffic in the cafe through you so that you could kind of tweak what people were browsing. So if they're looking at the news, you could alter the headlines or alter the information before they saw it. Um, and so both of these last two pieces for me make me think about this idea that like our understanding of the world or of each other is so much based on kind of or on top of this our relationship with technology right it's the foundation um, but both of these show how easy it is to kind of manipulate that or how we sometimes we think it's so solid but it's you can really break it really easily or tweak it um, so what does that mean about our the foundation for our reality or our understanding of each other um, and I think a lot about APIs also. So this is a piece by Scott Garner called Hell is Other People. And he was using the Foursquare API. Um, and then when you wanted to go somewhere, it would give you directions to get there in a route that avoided all of your friends and acquaintances. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's a really nice inversion because it also points out how much APIs, they're, you know, they're not neutral. They have every technology and every API has some assumption about how you might use it or what, what your goals might be. Um, but they're also kind of ripe for subversion or for, for misusing them. And this exposes the bias in some way. Um, or this one, Girls Around Me, is not so much an art project, but uh, an attempt to make it really easy to find all the women around you and find out all the information really easily. Um, again, just using the Foursquare API. Um, so I guess getting back to the projects that we, we started with, um, this is the, the social Turkers piece that Jonathan mentioned.
Did the dates know? Um, some of them knew, some didn't. I would have liked to tell them all. I think the problem was that when I did it, the date sometimes became all about talking about Very the meta, project. yeah. And I really wanted to sort of imagine this time in the future where we all did it, but we didn't have to talk about it. It really got confusing at some point um, because I was, you know, doing being myself, but I was also getting these instructions. And this line between me and the the internet or the the triggers really started to get to get very um, kind of blurry. And again, it was similar to the script piece. Like seeing at first, it was kind of feeling guys being pushed to say these things and do these things I wouldn't normally. And by the end, feeling almost like I wasn't really sure what to do without. Um, without that. I went on a date, you know, afterwards without any Turk assistance and I was just kind of completely confused about, you know, what what did I actually want? Um, so I, I, I took this project and I started thinking about, you know, what if we, this, it was kind of based on this idea in the future where we could just do this and everyone did it and it wasn't really about the subvert, um, subverting or the surveillance or anything kind of secret, but more just out in the open, we get help when we need it. So I made this app called um, Crowdpilot, and... Sadie, so um... Hey, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> When was the last time you really wished for something? Oh, you know what? I always kind of wanted to go to all 50 state capitals. Yeah? Yeah. Well, how many have you got to? 25. Um, 26 uh, when I go to Carson City next month, and then Olympia, Salem, Sacramento on the West Coast. Crowdpilot is an app that lets you crowdsource your conversations. Bring along your friends or invite strangers to help you in any situation, like a date, a meeting, a family gathering, or just let them figure out what's going on. Your crowd pilots listen in and give you live suggestions of what to do or say. Relax, take control, Take a chance. Get Crowdpilot. So yeah, in addition to the the mechanical Turks, there's also this idea of like inviting your Facebook friends or maybe inviting the specific friend that might be useful in a certain situation. Um, and so there was a, a great response, uh, and by great I mean kind of outraged. <laughs> <laughs> so people were sort of going going nuts a little bit. Um, there was some sort of, I, this one luckily didn't get passed, um, because I'm not even sure what it means, but uh, <laughs> I think Obama would have had to weigh in. 
um, people kind of debating, like, is this an art project? Is this a startup? And I think part of it was just, you know, the website was done to a level that it, it didn't, and I didn't say on there, this is an art project. Or at least I didn't say this isn't a real app. Um, and then I, I saw it on Fox News. <laughs> Well, if you can't beat them, join them. Thanks to the new phone app CrowdPilot, the NSA is no longer the only snooping game in town. Now you are. To tech guru Cassie Slant on how it all works. What, what are we talking about here? Well, I wish I had this app back in my dating days. It's weird. It's just very, very weird. This is actually tempting the evil right there. No, but this is actually a great idea because what it's doing is it's making another form of what we're already using social media in its best sense. Wait a minute. Yeah, so they had this like panel of, of lawyers uh, debating legality. They got the facts completely wrong, but and they, <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then and then just this, you know, people are outraged. It looks like a startup, and. Um, and it, it started making me think about this kind of idea. I guess I was kind of overwhelmed by this backlash. Um, and so I started thinking about these apps that are they're so questionable. So this is an app that takes all of your data and then makes an avatar. So after you're dead, people can keep talking to you and they, if they miss you. Um, or this is something that would help you plan all of your excuses for avoiding people. And it would keep track of when you last used each one. Um, or if you felt really guilty, it would help you anonymously transfer some money into their bank account to kind of level off your guilt. Um, or this is an app called Refresh that uh, will pull up all the information about someone when you're about to see them, like your you know, girlfriend's parents. And so you have things to talk about and you um, know all the context. <coughs> Um, or this was at the Kai conference last month. So quantified toilet. So they, um, you, basically they were testing the water, and then they could tell you the blood alcohol, or whether you're pregnant, or there's infections, and then this was a live feed. Um, and so I guess the, with all of these, you know, the let's see. This one is real. This one is a design project. This one is real. This one was a hoax. But it's almost become impossible to tell. And with CrowdPilot, it was really something that was all of those things at the same time. Um, and I feel sure that I stole this from Joanne, but I couldn't find the, um, maybe not, I don't know, I think you talked about this in our class, but I really like this image where, you know, half of these people are, some of these people are, are actually thinking 2013 is like America's birthday, and then the rest of them are making fun of these people that think 2013, or think that America is, you know, 2013 years old on the 4th of July. Um, and it's impossible to tell without any context. If you knew one of these people, you would probably have some guess about if they're serious or mocking. But without any context, it's just out there. Um, uh, I guess the last point about the response was kind of interesting. So I, it was kind of blowing up on Twitter for a couple of days. And the thing that I noticed was like 90% of the people really upset about Crowdpilot were men. Um, there are not a lot of women saying anything. And then at the same time, I was getting kind of emails and tweets and direct messages and stuff from women that were saying, like, you know, it's not actually that terrible. I really need this app. Um, as I'm 34 and single, and I think this is filling a void. Um, so, yeah. But I think the, the closing point for me um, is just, you know, people are actually using it. That was, I was kind of like, what was the point of making this app? How did it go further than the performance? And I think it was that people actually used it and had an experience. And so when we launched it, um, we started with uh, an event with Rhizome, which is an arts organization in New York, and we had a blind date where two people went on a date, and then all of the Rhizome members could go to the website and help out. So there are probably you know a couple hundred people listening and giving people on both sides, uh, both the the man and the woman, some 
some help. Um, and so one of these people, Taeyun Choi, is a friend of mine, and so he wrote, he made some illustrations and he kind of wrote a little bit about the experience. But I just wanted to close this little presentation with some of his uh, quotes from his experience. So he said, after we finished our second drink, I feel pretty comfortable about being with her, but our conversation does feel a bit hyper-stimulated. There's not much time between our conversation. There's no space for natural pause. It's easy to confuse stimulation with excitement. She turns off her app. We ask for a check. There are a few moments of strange silence between our conversation, but finally, a genuine sense of presence between two strangers. The withdrawal from Crowdpilot is really disorienting my sense of presence. I know there are at least a few hundred people listening to our blind date, but I'm already feeling displaced from my date who's physically close to me. So fast and so easily, our presence disappears from one another. And so I think hearing this and seeing this was what really made it worth it for me. You know, I'm, there's humor and there's videos, but it's really about creating experiences and new ways to see each other. And I think um, as artists, it's part of what we can add to this conversation about technology or about culture, or about the ways that we, we interact with these systems. And I, I think, you know, it's as probably as you guys know, it's not black and white. You can't just say this section of technology is bad. Um, there's, a, there's this gray area, and so how do you kind of navigate your way through that? That's all I got. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for that presentation. Um, done entirely, as best I can tell, without the aid of outside brains urging her on or telling her <laughs> what to say. Um, and it's so interesting to see some of the themes that run through what you do, including um, a persistent concern about self-absorption <laughs> and at the same time um, a real hunger for disinhibition. And those two things maybe aren't going in hand in hand. Often disinhibition could lead to more self-absorption. Um, but you also... I mean, this is such a nice demonstration of what you can do when you occupy this liminal space between artist and academic, um, and maybe a third point is app maker or somebody out to just find a market and sell stuff. Um, as you pointed out, when, I don't know, if you had asked us to guess which apps were real, which were hoax, I, I think we would have been about as good as random at knowing which was which. And it gets harder and harder to caricature as the app environment just keeps outdoing itself. Um, so I guess my question is to ask you just to unpack a little more how you think about your own mission at different times, how much of it is to stimulate, to provoke, and then if there's pushback, be, hey, it's art, versus so much of this is to address shortcomings you see in the world that if done right, and if there were a way to know it were being done right, you actually might want to see people adopt. Mm -hmm. I can't tell. You just kind of juggle the hats um, as, as you feel, but I'm curious if you could say a little more about that. Yeah, I think it's... I'm, I'm always trying to make something that is both serious and earnest and optimistic and also kind of critical and dystopian or reflective at the same time and a lot of times it's kind of perplexing because people are like but, but how do you feel um, and I think the answer is that you know I don't know I'm figuring it does out does the optimistic and dystopian map to like academic and art 
respectively, or no, they both go to and both to of each, them. I think. Uh-huh. Um, maybe a little more dystopic in art. Uh-huh. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, no, I think, yeah, it's it's not one or the other. It's that you know every every technology or every system has its kind of positive aspects and the scarier aspects and so how do we think about what we're doing think about it certainly suggests that most of the kind of templated interactions we all know how to do ordering at a restaurant having a meeting around an idea um, going on a date might be quite ripe for various forms of technological intervention which in turn bring other people far away into it and I could totally see a consulting business with firms wanting to know how to shake up mm-hmm. the meetings that everybody just goes to, all knowing that it's not really all that helpful. I don't know how many people have been on conference calls where the last person on the call is finally absorbed in his or her phone, so the conference call falls silent, and people are just sort of on their phones, respectively working on something, and then somebody's like, uh, are we still having a call? <laughs> maybe it's just me. I, maybe it's one of your experiments, and I didn't know it. Um, anyway, should we open it up to questions, comments, reactions? Thanks for that talk. Um, I'm fascinated by what happens to agency in these stories that you're telling and sort of when there's the moment of agency that says, I have a lack, and then the agency of I'm going to create or submit to a technology, and then the lack of agency that comes from just like following the responses and then not. And it was really interesting to see those shift in your project. And I'm particularly struck by two things in this agency. One is the idea of the glitch, because I was thinking of all the glitches that came up, but the glitch is something that we usually say that's a mistake, but you're sort of like sort of the agency of like insisting upon a glitch, you know, like insisting on that moment. So I wanted to ask you about that. And then also I was struck by the fact that most of the people in the stories that you tell are simultaneously anxious and trusting. Like they're sort of anxious and that's what's driving their need for the technology, but also profoundly trusting to sort of like do what people say. Um, And so I just wanted to ask you about that tension. Um, Feel free to answer both or neither. Sure. <laughs> um, so the insistence on a glitch. Um, I, I guess, I guess the best way I can answer it is. So I, as I mentioned, I kind of teach a class about this stuff, and the first assignment is um, go create a social glitch. And so one guy made a, a project that's pretty good, which is that he would um, he wrote some script that would look for tweets that said. Um, check out my new profile picture. And then he would steal that picture, add it to his account, and then tweet back, cool picture, can I use it too? Or like, hey, we're twins. Um, <laughs> and most people are like, oh, ha, ha, that's weird. Um, <laughs> but, but then some people get like really upset and be like, I'm reporting you. Like, how dare you? This is my picture. You don't have any rights. Um, and we were kind of saying, what's the point of making glitches? And what rights do you have to do that? Like, this person's really upset, you know? It's not just, like, a anonymous person on the Internet. It's a real person on the Internet. Um, and so what what obligation do you have to the people around you when you involve them in your your experiments? And you're definitely wearing your, your artist hat when you're doing them so that you don't have to worry about an institutional review board right. or human yes. subjects testing. Yes. Or, we <laughs> envy you greatly. I think a lot of this work would be <laughs> difficult yeah. to do in that context. Um, and so I think, you know, we, as a class, came to this idea, like, 
And then also the question, what's the point? Are we just trying to mess with people? Is it just for the sake of that, and why? And I think the point is that this idea that maybe if you insert a little glitch, something really profound or interesting or new could come out of it, and a belief that it's worth doing. And I think each person has to kind of find their own, you know, spot, their own line that they won't cross or that it's they think It's also fascinating, the search for spontaneity through script. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, have you tried your experiments in different social and cultural contexts? Because I, I wonder if you know maybe the same the same tool in like Japan or in Italy or here would have like a completely different way of interacting with the social dynamics. I would really like to. All of this is um, admittedly very American, and very Western, um, and I think some of these would be totally incomprehensible in other places. Um, yeah. Curious to know how you felt when Fox compared this to the NSA and how now anybody can do that. Was that were you trying to make an intervention on surveillance culture in the first place, or um, is that just a side effect of all of this? Dan, does she need to repeat the question, or is it okay? You got it. Great. Um, I mean, the app was again a little bit critical. Like, do we really want this, or could it be, you know? Could it be great? You know, in the future, maybe we are not just one brain; we are many. Um, it definitely was it had very little to do with the NSA for me, but it was kind of like this buzzword, hot topic that people just were like, "Oh, we can connect it and make a story." Um, and it made me realize that, like, when you put something out there, it's really sort of a little bit out of your control, um, and all you can do is kind of like send it off with your your intention. And, and just what's the life cycle of an app like this? And some of them are only storyboarded or have the nice voiceover with the ad, and some of them you actually code as a whole app. And yeah. I, what's the life cycle for it? How long does it last, or is it meant to last? Uh, um, I would say I, I've never made a video of something that didn't actually work. <laughs> so all these videos that you saw were actual, like you could, I have the objects in my room, or it was an actual app on the App Store. Hmm. Um, uh, with the exception of the people keeper, which is kind of in progress right now. Um, and then the life cycle depends on like how long I can keep going before I get really burnt out and disillusioned. But um, from idea to app, is like is that like a week long? It, it really depends. I mean, the iOS apps take a while usually, so maybe it's more like six months or something. <laughs> um, the Google Hangout one was kind of like a few weekends. Yeah. Tim? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about why it's important to make them actually work? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, well, I have, I used to feel like it's really important, and I've started to really question that lately, especially like when it's just out there and it's a flash in the pan. Um, I think it's, it comes down to people using it. Um, so for the crowd pilot, like people have to, they can see the video or the tweets and they can react, but some people actually download it and think about, what do I do? You know, do I need to tell a person? Or what situation do I want it in? Or, you know, the people on the date, like actually getting, Suggestion. So for me, it's it's about that. Like it goes from this hypothetical compensation to like a totally real one. It's the, the object sitting on your table, or the app is on your phone, or you could download it and click on the button. So, so uh, considering uh, your work as art, I think of uh, sort of movies and music that develop a cult following where they're not initially popular, but then these works of art, eventually people sort of get
get it and they tell their friends about it and then it gets popular are there challenges with developing an app that you don't see in uh, that are maybe different in the sense that you have to keep the technology up to date to make sure it works on the operating system um, and that sort of thing like how do you make sure that your apps are usable in the future where maybe people in the future maybe people will be like onto this but right now they think it's kind of weird I think they take on a different role in the same way that like some of those performance pieces I showed like at some point you could actually go and be in that room and do it and and then at some later point you can't but you can see the pictures or you can hear the story um, or you could see a video um, and they function in different ways right but I think it's not very realistic to maintain like 10 a growing number of apps over the years so yeah at some point you just kind of move to the next project um, have you had any like problems getting your apps approved by Apple for the iOS apps? Have they ever said, sorry, this is just not acceptable, it's too controversial for us? Um, no, and I think it's because I'm always really, like with the CrowdPilot, there's an app that says, everyone knows you're CrowdPiloting, right? When you start a session, there's a little pop-up mm -hmm. and you say, of course. And then you can. <laughs> um, but then there, or there's like a big disclaimer, like this is not intended for dis, you know, discreet for listening. For the purpose for which it was made. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned um, Google Glass briefly in your talk, and it strikes me as a technology that could take what you're doing and into really new and scary ways. Um, have you played around with um, uh, Google Glass yet, and 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 how it could fit into this sort of um, experiments that you're conducting? Um, I, a little bit. I don't have one myself, but um, I think right now it's like just not mainstream. I'm really interested in these things that like people will come across in their kind of everyday life. I mean, the smartphone is still a little bit removed from anyone's access, but less removed than something like Google Glass. So I think that's why I haven't really looked that much in that into that one in particular, but I think that's kind of the future, which would be you know, computing that's not an object in your hand, but really integrated. And that's, I think, something like Social Turkers was an example of, like, you know, imagining that in the future it would be this sort of thing where it's just, you know, in front of your face, not like a phone that you're looking down at. Rob? Two questions. You can pick and choose or, or discard them both. Um, the, I'm very interested in the experiments where you see control of your personal life, and I'm wondering how much of the feedback you get was really good, solid advice, and how much of it was sketchy, and how much of it was just downright malicious. Um, and the, the second question, I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of kind of uh, technology-assisted human interaction, and I'm wondering to what extent we'd be better off if everybody were more charming in their I think there'd be a lot of more satisfying interactions, and I think there'd be a whole lot of people driving really crappy used cars around as well, and I'm wondering <laughs> where that balance is, and, and whether there would be an, another app which is like, this person is bullshitting you, careful, you know, warning, warning, help navigate that. But you've raised the level that everybody is a certain measure of polite. It makes it harder to figure out his schedule. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I didn't quite understand. So, when you're talking about raising the level of politeness, are you saying like virtual adeptness? If, if uh, we were to oh, get I to see. the point where I'm reading your face while I'm discussing right. with you, and I, I get a closer reading of how you how receptive you are to it, um, 
would in effect be better at being manipulative yeah. in a good way or in a bad way. Yeah, and again, like what, do you have some right to your private thoughts? Like, should a technology that could help me understand what you're thinking and feeling better could be useful, right? We could connect more, but also maybe I, I don't want everyone to know what I'm thinking and feeling. What, where's the, how much privacy should I have there? So for a room like this, what's your instinct as to how uh, optimized it is for a successful thought-enriching interaction? I mean, I think of the foot pedal thing. I remember I taught a class 10 years ago where uh, people on their browsers while in the class could just drag a slider mm. between clear and confusing. And if enough people mm, said that, that enough yeah. uh, were enough confusing, a foghorn would sound in the class. <laughs> <laughs> and it would often sound at times that as the teacher, I thought I was being perfectly clear. And mm -hmm. I think they weren't messing with me after the first bit of play. <laughs> and it, it then astounded me that I could be like talking mm -hmm. for 30 minutes with most people having absolutely no idea what I was talking about. And I'd be like, well, that was fun. So that seems to be yeah. like a good example. I ended up pulling the plug on it because they were using it on each other. And then the <laughs> students were feeling they're already neurotic enough. Um, <laughs> But so I'm curious if you have thoughts about, for an earnest group of people mm -hmm. wanting to make great use of the privilege of being in such close proximity and such rich bandwidth, do you have thoughts of how we would do it better? Like what? Apps we could yeah. be running, practices mm. we could be adopting, whether or not we need an app as the mediator to capture the praxis? I mean... Mm, I think just in a big group, especially when you don't know people, the, the main thing is you are a little bit hesitant to say what you're thinking or ask the questions that you, that you have. So I think anything that makes that... So like an anonymous easier. feed, a Twitter-like feed behind yeah, the speaker or something. something like that. And I think in a, a group that is like earnest in wanting to try a technology and kind of believing that it could work, it, there is a lot of potential for it to be useful. And I think that was something with the Conversa Cube, like people believed this was going to be fun and interesting, and it, it was. Mm. And you kind of buy into the system. I mean, I'm even thinking of if, uh, what would a group Conversa Cube look like, yeah. where we were all instructed at the same time, and one might be just a feature called Sudden Death, that it might <laughs> declare the talk over at any minute after a certain period of time, would we ask and answer questions differently mm. knowing that the ax could fall at any moment? <laughs> I don't know. I think I would. I wouldn't ramble as much as I have been. <laughs> be cool. Other thoughts? Questions? Yes. Um, it seems like a lot of your work it seems like a lot of your work interrogates themes of conversation and intimacy. And forgive me if this sounds obnoxious, my question, but I was wondering what a conversation is to you and how does it differ from um, something like interaction or talking or connection? What, what is a conversation? <laughs> mm. Oh, man. There, yeah. um, he was ask, asking kind of what, is, what does conversation mean to me? Um, versus just talking or interacting. Oh man, there's this quote that I wish I could. Um, Your helpers right stand now. ready. Yeah. <laughs> Give us the prompt. Uh, okay, I'm gonna just butcher the quote because I want to convey. Um, I, it was 
something about saying like the best conversations kind of like take you someplace that you weren't already. Um, they they show you something in yourself you didn't even know was there, and they uh, or maybe you find in someone else the thing that is in yourself that you didn't even know was there. And I thought that was I put it much worse than the quote, but I thought it was a really nice. Uh, way to think of it, like it, it kind of takes you somewhere beyond logistics or beyond everything that you already know or think and it maybe opens up a space where you feel like there could be something new or it could be something deeper. I'm wondering about the, the vulnerability that you project uh, to us. Um, I, I'm sort of having a, a, a a fantasy about you being a comedian and you're, ha you're having us on. This is an Andy Kaufman like thing. <laughs> yeah, Hugh Grant or something like that. Would be, uh, um, it would explain a lot if Hugh Grant were Andy Kaufman. <laughs> it would, yes. Um, but now you've derailed me. Um, the, um, if you're a comedian, you know, you, you're, you're toying with, with some of these moments of uh, and and it's and it's humorous and it's poignant at the same time, and uh, and and you can be doing this, and but a part just like with Hugh Grant, I guess, and not Andy Kaufman, that that a part of it is this, that you need to project um, confidence and vulnerability at the same time. So I'm wondering, you know, over the course of time, you described yourself as coming out of MIT and being totally vulnerable. And then, with all this attention that you're getting, is the vol is the the is it fading away? Are you becoming more confident, and can that undermine your show? Mm. Um, I I I don't think so because, um, well, I think the thing that I feel vulnerable about, vulnerable about is this is not a a moment that is so rehearsed as this where I can sit and present something, but is where, you know, we're just having a conversation, you and me, and I don't know anything about you, and I don't know, like, I want, I want to connect with you, but I don't know how. I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you're expecting from me, and I think for a lot of people that comes really naturally, and for me, I get, like, just caught up thinking about, like, well, but what, what is expected? What should I say? What, what does he mean by hello? Um, <laughs> and that hasn't changed over time. And I think I've gotten better at just kind of rolling with it. I used to, uh, I the first thing I made were these like dress shoes that would like convert into running shoes so I could run out the door. <laughs> and I, um, I literally ran out, I think people in this room can attest to it, I would like run out the door and just like leave and they'd be like, where are, <laughs> you, what, we're at the party, where'd you go? Um, so see, I've but I could also see you inventing like, barred doors to prevent people from running away. Like, yeah. I could see you inventing both. Yes. The thing to force people to stay in the conversation and the thing to give them the escape. Yeah. I'm usually just trying to create, like, a, my own personal hell with each of these projects and then <laughs> see if I can, like, survive it. Um, so I think I've built a little few more rules for myself where I just, you know, say, it's going to be okay. Um, and that's just part of, like, growing up and developing as a person. But I don't know if it necessarily, like, ruins the show. Fine. Other hands up? Other questions? If you, oh, sorry. I know, I'm just sort of wondering, um, have you found that 
these ideas, these projects play differently within sort of the MIT community or even Cambridge generally compared to the rest of the world? Obviously, you know, Fox News is not MIT and they're freaking out, but I mean, we're, we're just having a little from that ecosystem, like squee moment. We want to go have all these things in common use and use them all the time. So I'm just wondering, like, it, has MIT and its ilk generally responded differently to these projects? Um, yeah, I th well, it's really, I think every, there's a lot of different reactions, but one of the most interesting is like showing some of these things to one of my friends that's in, uh, that worked with Ross Picard and in the effective computing group and him being like, I, I think this is good, but it might be a little bit off-putting. Like maybe people might feel uncomfortable with this, in, you know, project and kind of thinking about it from a research point of view and I'm like, Right, it, but it's supposed to be uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> there, I fixed that for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think people, uh, people around here are able to see more of the nuance of it. Like the questions that I'm getting right now, usually it's a little more like, what was the worst state you went on? Um, so I think being able to understand the, more the nuance of the technology and the implications of that is something that this crowd can do very well. So what lies ahead? Is it sort of continuing in this mode where you kind of conceive of an interesting app or an exercise uh, and then have a way of writing it up and checking out what happens? If MacArthur, you know, woke you up at 7 a.m. and said, <laughs> you're a genius, and then like, we've just given you, like, achievement unlocked, here's $500,000. Would you be kind of doing more of the same, or is there something kind of bigger that you would do if you didn't have constraints? Mm, I think I'm always, I think the question of skill is a good one. Um, I, I, I don't have ideas about what the, the larger scale of this would be. I think it's starting to get there with some of the mm. apps I'm making that just take more development and more time. Um, but really, I'm just starting with when I start a new project, I'm thinking about like what's the most confusing thing in my life right now, mm -hmm. and could I deal with that by making some art about it? Mm -hmm. So, at the moment I made social circles, it was like I don't get this dating thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just kind of starting starting there, and I think it takes the form. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Yeah, and everything